0: Good morning. I'm Abigail Pecklow. Please join me in scripture from Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels, as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, good morning, Faith Church. You can go ahead and take a seat. Those of you with kids, I can see what you're thinking right now that you're like, oh no, there's been so much talking and now a whole sermon. Well, we're going to try to do this uh, a little bit short in form, so I'm going to talk faster and, uh, and get through this uh, introduction to the, the book of Hebrews a little bit quicker so we can still get out in time to uh, beat the other churches to uh, Bob Evans or wherever we go for lunch afterwards. Uh, we're starting this series in Hebrews we're calling Greater Than. Greater than, because all throughout the book, over and over again, the author of the book of Hebrews makes this argument that Jesus is greater, greater than Moses, greater than angels, greater than Joshua, greater than the prophets, greater than Aaron, greater than Melchizedek, on and on and on. The author says, Jesus is greater Comparisons just sort of seem to be the nature of the game. I coach a, a kid soccer team, I think I've talked about it a little bit, and I've got some kids who are pretty good, and after every game and during every game, I keep catching them saying things like, I scored more goals than you, I'm better than you are. It's something we can't help but do, compare ourselves to others, compare one thing to another, not necessarily to find out which is best, but at least which is better. The author of this particular letter, as he's reading the Old Testament, keeps reflecting on this fact that Jesus is better, better than all the things he's read about before. And so this this letter, this sermon, whatever you want to call it, is an exploration of this theme, Jesus is better, he's greater than. We're going to take the next, I don't know, eight, nine months, the rest of the school year, basically, to walk all the way through the entire book, seeing over and over again, Jesus is greater greater than anything we could compare him to. It's an argument, Jesus is greater, that starts from the very first paragraph of the letter. Hebrews 1.1 is where we're starting. Uh, If you're, well, as you're turning to Hebrews 1.1, I'm going to set up just a little bit overall what this letter is about, some of the features of it. Um, As you're turning there, if you need the Bible that's under the seat in front of you, it's on page 1187, or if you've got one of these journals, it's right at the beginning of the journal. Uh, these are great. You can grab them down at the Welcome Center for just a couple of dollars. Uh, grab one, follow along. If you're OCD like me and you want to make sure you allot the proper space for sermon notes week to week, you get this much space for me, and then next week you get all of this for Jeff, all of that for Jeff, and the next page at the very top. for So anyway, anyway, you can feel free to use that whole first page on me this week, and Jeff gets plenty of space next week. All right, if you're turning there, let me set this up real quick. Hebrews as a letter contains some of the highest level of Greek in the entire New Testament. Uh, it's it's the, about the most densely argued and theologically technical book that we have. It reads a lot like a sermon uh, until you get to the end and then some of the more traditional stuff like letters Uh, that letters have begins to show up. But all the way through, it's like we are reading a sermon, a sermon delivered in a kind of classically Greek oratorical style, uh, but with some North African Jewish influence on its theology. It's a fascinating book. Uh, And we have no idea who wrote it, which is part of what makes it interesting. Uh, It's linguistically more advanced than anything we have from Luke, the physician, or Paul, the rabbi, a higher style than either of them, at least what we've gotten from them. Uh, Commentators will throw out different suggestions, maybe it's this person, maybe it's that person. Really, we don't know. We don't know who wrote it. We don't know when it was written, though we think it was probably written before AD 70. That's when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed, and this guy talks about the temple a lot and never mentions the destruction of it. So we're fairly confident it was written before AD 70. Uh, From Italy, maybe, by who, we really don't know. But all through the book, in fact, it's hard to find a paragraph that doesn't have some sort of Old Testament quote or parallel or allusion in it, it to the Old Testament. Uh, One commentator says, uh, more than any other New Testament book, Hebrews from beginning to end preaches the Old Testament, and the author carries it out with rhetorical power and artistry. This is somebody who could take all of the themes, all the threads of the Old Testament and is tying them all together in Christ, showing how they're all fulfilled by Jesus. Remember, the central argument is that Jesus is greater than all of the Old Testament system, sacrificial system, priestly system, all of it. Not better in the sense that the old one was flawed, just that it wasn't complete, Jesus is the the final revelation, the finished, the completed revelation of the Old Testament system. So as we jump into these first four verses, uh, verses one through four, as we set up the study of the entire book of Hebrews, we're just going to see two main points this morning. First, that Jesus is a better revelation. He's a better revelation of who God is. And second, that a better revelation leads to a better gospel, better news than we would find anywhere else. So let's jump in, Hebrews 1, 1, a better revelation. And I should say, when I use the word revelation in this context, I don't want you to be thinking of the last book of the Bible, the one with the scary images of beasts and dragons and lakes of fire and stuff like that. Not end times revelation, I mean a better revealing, uh, the sense of like reading a novel or a story and learning more about characters the farther into the book you get. When we come to Jesus, we're seeing more of God. More of God is being revealed to us. That's what I mean by revelation. And in the first verse and a half, the author is making a contrast between the previous revelation of God's plan and purpose for the world and the new revelation of God's plan through the person of Jesus Christ. Let me read it again. Uh, Verse 1 and the first half of verse 2. Long ago, in many times and in many ways, or if you're, if you're like me and you memorize that in the old King James at diverse times and in sundry manner. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. See the contrast immediately coming up in just that first verse and a half. From long ago to these last days. From spoke to our fathers to spoke to us from spoke by the prophets to spoke by his son. Think back to the Old, the Old Testament and the, the various modes of revelation, the ways God revealed himself. They're pretty diverse. Sometimes God would dictate his word. Like in Jeremiah, he'd say, write this. Or to Ezekiel, he'd say, do this. Here's what it means. Sometimes he'd show up in an event, uh, a, a display of power like the burning bush fiery furnace. Sometimes God's revelation would come through an individual reflecting on their experience of life and of God and then writing about it. You can think of David writing a psalm. Uh, He's reflecting on his experience of God and writes a song in reflection of that. That's part of God's revelation. Jewish tradition held that the angels, anytime God shows up and and sort of gives revelation in the Old Testament. It's, it was always the angels who brought it, who mediated that revelation. Uh, the, the author to Hebrews right away, verse 1, he, he, co- he compares Jesus to the prophets. Uh, but in verse 4, he compares Jesus to the angels and talks about how Jesus is superior to the angels. I'm not going to say anything more about that because verse 4 really sets up the whole rest of the chapter that Pastor Jeff's going to preach next week, so I'll let him deal with angels. Uh, For now, back to verse 1, Jesus is greater than the prophets. That was an old revelation, an incomplete revelation. Now, we have the Son, a better revelation. One commentator says, in the past we had the word revelation, now we have the Son revelation, or the self-revelation. And if you think about it, every relationship between two people involves the same sense of progressive revealing of yourself. When my wife, Jen, and I were first getting to know one another 15 or so years ago, we spent the the first couple months of our relationship before we were really dating, when we didn't really know what it was, mainly conversing and telling one another about ourselves over instant messenger. Not text, we didn't have phones, or I didn't have a phone at least then. So we were sitting in front of our computers like you've got mail style, instant messaging each other back and forth. And we, we learned a lot about each other through the words of the screen, the things that we enjoyed, the things we didn't enjoy, the things we were afraid of, the stuff we'd been carrying around for our lives, the, uh, the things we had in common, the things we liked, the things we didn't like. We slowly revealed more of ourselves to Each other, but at some point in our relationship, we progressed from communicating mainly through the written word to communicating mainly in person. You could say our revelation of ourselves to one another moved from dictation to incarnation. As we moved from typing words to one another to being face to face, physically present. And it was great. Because I found out that the person in person was the same as the person in writing. Mostly. Not like those internet horror stories you hear about online dating sometimes. But as we move from written communication to -to face-to-face communication, there was a continuity. It's the same person, just a better and a fuller revelation. The author of Hebrews is arguing that basically the same thing is happening, the same pattern is playing itself out in humanity's relationship with God. In the past, we knew him through the written word, through displays of power, through an event, but now we can know him in person. Now we can see him face to face in Jesus. A few years back, we were in Spain doing a conversational English camp with our missionaries, the Rolls, outside of Barcelona, and uh, it was an evangelistic camp, so we were talking with a couple of students, none of them believers. We were talking about, if God exists, how would he let us know? How would he reveal himself to us? And by analogy, we asked the question, well, consider Harry Potter. If J.K. Rowling wanted her characters to know that she exists, that she's there, she's the author, she knows what's going to happen... She wanted them to know she was there. What could she do? Different students threw out different ideas. One said, well, she could write a letter to them. She could tell them, hey, I'm here. I'm watching. You're going to be okay. Uh, Another student said, well, she could could tell the characters things about themselves that only they know. Another said, well, she could tell them what's going to happen in the future, and then when it happens, they'd know that she's there. There was a bit of a pause, and then one of the students said, Maybe the easiest way would be if she just wrote herself into the story as one of the characters. If, if she just wrote herself in as a character and said, hey, I'm the author, and then walked through the story with the other characters, they'd know she's there, they'd know she existed. And those of us leading the discussion were like, that's brilliant because that's exactly what we think Jesus, that God did through Jesus. When when Christians say God became man, we're saying God wrote himself into the story, into the story of this world that he created in order to show us, his characters, who he is, what he's like, what he's done, and to actually redeem the story, change the story from the inside. So if God's going to reveal himself to us fully, completely, not not just in words, but In person, he's got to write himself into the story. He's got to become part of the world. See, Jesus is a better revelation. Not because the old one wasn't good or wasn't true or wasn't credible, but because the new one is complete. We see him face to face. In Jesus, we we have a complete and a full revelation of who God is. Jesus is a better revelation revelation. Because he's a better revelation, he leads to a better gospel, a better good news. Because Jesus is a better revelation, we can see clearly and fully who God is. It leads to a better gospel, better good news. Look at verses 2 and 3. Verse 2, it says, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, his son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. There's a lot packed into just those couple of verses, and we just have a few minutes left, so I can't dig into them uh, in a lot of detail, but I want to focus initially right on the center of all these phrases. One commentator says there's seven facts about Jesus in here. He makes it sound really boring. He says there's seven facts about Jesus in here. And the center three all relate to how, God, or how Jesus does God's work in the world. Look at this, the center three. They're found in verse three. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God. That is, in Jesus we see the glory of the goodness of God made manifest, made personal in Jesus. He's also... The exact imprint of God's nature. Meaning Jesus is fully and completely God in the same way that two coins stamped out of the same mold are identical. He's the imprint of his nature. And three, he, Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of his power. He doesn't hold the universe like Atlas holding the dead world on his shoulders. This is the sense of Jesus holds the world and moves it forward towards its appointed end. Jesus is the one who who moves the earth and everyone in it towards the purposes that God has for it. Jesus radiates God's glory, exemplifies his nature, moves his plan forward. But there's more. If you move outward from these three phrases, you take one before and one after, there's two that are related to each other. It says, through whom, through Jesus, God created the world. See, at the end of verse two. And he, Jesus, in the middle to the end of verse three, made purification for sins, His creative work and his redemptive work. Jesus created the world. Which, which of the prophets or the angels did God use to create the world? None of them. But he spoke the universe into being through Jesus. He, Jesus, made purification for sins. Which of the prophets or the angels ever offered a permanent and lasting sacrifice for sins? Well, none of them. But Jesus offered a sacrifice that lasts forever. Jesus is greater in his creation and his redemption. He's he's greater than the prophets, greater than the angels, greater than everything that came before. Now, if you go one more phrase out again from the center, we find two more phrases that are related to each other. Uh, Back there at the end of verse 2, whom he appointed the heir of all things... His son, Jesus, whom God appointed the heir of all things. And down at the end of verse 3, he, Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, if you, if you knew your psalms really well, which I don't. I wish I did. But if you knew your psalms really well, you would instantly recognize two different psalms being quoted or alluded to in these verses. If, you're, if you like to write in your Bible or you've got one of these journals and you want to write in it, next to the words, heir of all things, write Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a psalm about God's royal son. And the author of Hebrews is going to bring Psalm 2 back up a couple of times throughout this letter as he he tries to argue that Jesus is God's royal son. And because he's a son, he can be the heir, the king. Now, farther down, where it says he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, next to sat down at the right hand, write Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is a psalm about God's royal priest, the the mediator between God and man, the one who stands between God and humanity. And again, the author of Hebrews is gonna bring this psalm up over and over again as we go through the letter, arguing that Jesus, not just God's royal son, but also God's priest, he's king, he's priest, he's a better prophet, he's a better messenger, better than the angels. Over and over and over again, he argues, Jesus is greater. Now I just blew through those themes amazingly fast because we're going to come back to all of them throughout the course of the next eight or nine months. It's it's like the author is sort of giving giving us his thesis statement right up front. He's saying, Here's all these things about Jesus, I'm just going to put them on the table now because I'm arguing for them later. But for now, we're just supposed to feel the cumulative weight of all of this, that Jesus is greater. And because he is greater, a better revelation, it leads to a greater and a better gospel. Gospel meaning, you probably know this, the word gospel means good news. Right? Gospel, good news. The very beginning of Hebrews, first four verses, the author is saying, let me tell you the news. I don't know if you've heard yet, but let me tell you the news. And he gives good news, not good advice. See the difference? He's giving good news, not good advice. Advice is a suggestion for what you need to do news is a declaration of what has already been done. See the difference? Advice says, hey, I got a suggestion for you. Here's what you should do. News says, let me tell you what has been done. And in Jesus, we have good news, not just good advice. Let me illustrate the difference. If I were to tell you You know, hey, in Jesus, we have a better revelation that God loves you and He wants you to be happy, and all He really cares about is that you be nice to one another and ask Him for help from time to time when you need it. That's not good news. That's good advice, maybe, if it's true, but it's not, so it's not great advice. But it's definitely not news, it's not gospel. If I were to tell you, hey, in Jesus we have a better revelation, all you have to do is believe a certain set of propositions. I'm going to tell you a bunch of facts about who Jesus is and what he did. And if you believe that, then God will accept you. Again, that's good advice. Hey, here's the way the world is. You should understand the way the world is. It's not good news. It's not gospel Another way of looking at it. I could tell you in Jesus we have a better revelation. All you have to do is clean up your life enough, uh, repent, really mean it this time, turn back to God and and Jesus will accept you or God will accept you through Jesus. But again, that's not good news. That's good advice. Here's how to respond in light of what you've heard. That's advice, not news. News is a statement about what has already happened. Been done, not what you have to do to get God to accept you. In Jesus, we have a better revelation of God and therefore a better gospel, better news, not just better advice. And Hebrews starts with the declaration of the news. In Jesus, all that has to be done has been done. In Jesus, everything that had to be done to fix the broken relationship between us and God, to pay the debt we owe God for our misguided and selfish attempts to take our life into our own hands, all of that has already been done in Jesus. He starts out telling us, you know how God used to talk to us and used to show himself, well now he showed himself in his own person, in his own son. Jesus, the, the royal son, the royal priest, the royal heir. Jesus has come. He, he's the one through whom God created everything. He's the one in whom we can see the radiance of God's glory. We can see the imprint of his nature. We can see how he's moving his plan forward by the word of his power. And in him, God has done What needed to be done he made purification for sins he paid the debt and it's done how do we know it's done when he finished he was exalted to the right hand of the majesty on high and sat down that's going to come back up again later in hebrews it's a big deal to be made out of the fact that jesus is sitting not standing but in summary what we know is jesus is done everything that had to be done has been done There's nothing left that you or I have to do. Nothing. That's the good news. Now, what are we supposed to do with news? Well, you do two things whenever you hear any news. First is you take it in, you hear it, and then you respond to it. You begin to live in light of that news. What has happened changes the way you live, the way you see yourself, and the way you see the world around you. So the first thing we have to do is hear the good news. In Jesus we have a better, a fuller, a more complete revelation of God which shows us all that has to be done has been done. Maybe you're here and you've been beating yourself up for years. You keep finding yourself coming back to the same habits, the same patterns, the same relationships, the same brokenness over and over and over again, and every time you swear it's gonna be different, and it never is. Jesus is greater. He's greater than that experience, and he's not telling you, hey, just clean yourself up, try a little harder, exercise a little more wisdom and self-restraint, and then I'll love you. He's saying everything that has to be done Has been done. Or maybe you're here and you've been a Christian for years, but it just doesn't seem to be working for you the way it used to. The older we get, the more we realize life is a little more complicated than the bumper sticker version of Christianity that we maybe adopted or accidentally sort of picked up as we were growing up, getting the simplified version of things. Jesus is greater greater than the struggle you're facing right now. And Jesus is telling us, look, it's not about trying harder. It's not about learning more. It's not about being better. It's just about getting to know him. He's the good news. It's about getting to know him. Or maybe you're here and you're not sure that you buy this whole Christianity thing in general, I don't know if your mom made you come or this is just the thing you do on Sundays. But I want you to know if you're sure you're not a Christian or you're not sure you're a Christian or wherever you are, what you got to understand this morning is that every religious system, every other religious system is good advice. Be moral, try harder, God will accept you. Or accept yourself, live out your desires, be you, God will accept you. Or Follow the Eightfold Path, or practice the Five Pillars, or whatever it is to get you to God or ultimate reality. Every other religious system is good advice, but only Christianity is good news. Every other religion says, here's what you have to do so that you can be accepted by God or ultimate reality or whatever. Christianity says, here's what God has done already so that you are accepted in Jesus. And all you have to do is live in light of that. You're not earning your way to God, getting your way to God. Christianity is the good news that that God himself has done in Christ what had to be done to save us, his image bearers, to unite us with one another and with him for eternity. That's the good news. You know, long ago, in different ways and at different times, God spoke through the prophets. But now he's speaking to us through his Son, His son, the radiance of the glory of God, the imprint of his nature, he he upholds the universe by the word of his power, and he's made purification for sins, and he's sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hear the good news. It is done. That's what we have to respond to this morning, the good news. Before we leave, I want to give you a little test. A little test for you to reflect on as you think about, do I see the gospel as good news or as good advice? Most of us, if we're trying to live in any sort of awareness of who we are and what we've done right or done wrong or how we have sinned before God, most of us have um, struggles or recent, you know, memories of a recent sin that kind of keeps popping back up. May, may have been an experience of pride or envy, uh, lust or vainglory or any one of these times where you have tried to get attention for yourself, get something for yourself, get satisfaction for yourself, and that sin pops back up into mind. Where you're not expecting it, you're driving down the road, whatever, and it just pops up. What do you do? We tend to have one of two responses. One response is every time that same thing comes, pa- comes back up, we say, God, forgive me. God forgive me for what I did. And over and over and over again for the same thing, the same incident, the same time we say, God, forgive me. Or when that thing pops up and comes to mind over and over and over again, we say, God, thank you that I'm forgiven. See the difference? If something comes to mind and we say, God, forgive me again for the same thing that we've already asked for forgiveness for, then we think of the gospel as good advice. Here's what you gotta do to get God to accept you. You just gotta be really repentant. You've gotta really ask for forgiveness. You've gotta mean it this time. Over and over and over again, you gotta beg God to forgive you. That's what you have to do to be accepted. The gospel says, everything that has to be done has been done. And so when something comes back to mind and you realize, ah, I yelled at my kids, I was short with my spouse, I cheated on a whatever, and I, or I did whatever thing, it comes back up and it just keeps coming back up and you say, God, I've asked for your forgiveness. I know you have forgiven me. Thank you that you have forgiven me. Help me to live in light of the forgiveness. That's the gospel. That's how you know That when you think about the gospel, you think of it as news, not advice. A better revelation of who Jesus is, which we're going to get all the way through this book of Hebrews, leads to a better gospel, a better good news. We're going to spend the next nine months or so walking through this letter. Over and over, seeing how Jesus is greater, greater greater than any other way we could try to come to God, greater than any of the things we try to do to make God love us, greater than any of the others who came before that pointed the way to God, Jesus is greater. This morning, our response is simply to hear the good news. What has to be done has been done and to live in light of that. Let's pray. Father, you have given us great news, not just great advice. There's nothing for us to do except hear the news and respond to it. God, you are greater than we could ever imagine. And in Jesus, we see the the culmination, the end, the, the fulfillment of everything great that came before Jesus is greater. I pray that you would help us as a a people who belong to Christ to rest in the news of what Jesus has done for us. In his name we pray.